3: Across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We have reached the end of another lockdown week as we edge ever closer to the Boris Johnson Roadmap. On Monday, the Prime Minister will reveal exactly what he's decided to do. Or, alternatively, depending on your view, he will reveal exactly what his sage advisers tell him he can do. We shall explore the options today with Baroness Kate Hoey over in Northern Ireland, where they're still struggling with the fallout from Brexit. Last time we spoke, uh, it wasn't clear what the end result would actually be. It wasn't clear uh, how they would solve the problem of the Northern Ireland Protocol and the intransigence of the European Union. We'll find out uh, whether or not they've got any closer to doing that. We might also ask her what she made of secure style rather lacklustre keynote speech yesterday where he once again failed to make any impression on anyone or anything. It was absolutely dull as ditch water as you might have expected. Also he didn't by the way mention Brexit. No surprise there. Uh, We did a poll yesterday with three possible outcomes. Question was should Sir Keir Starmer be Prime Minister? The options were no, definitely not uh, and no chance. Surprisingly enough 100% of you thought Uh, that he would not be Prime Minister. Another fantastic, unbiased poll here at Talk Radio, the home of Common Sense. Coming up, uh, we're talking to a student group who think they're being ripped off, which of course may be their first lesson in life. Many of them haven't even seen the inside of a lecture theatre, but they're still being charged top whack. Most of them are back at home after paying for a year's worth of accommodation. More evidence that education is now a business. Uh, rather than anything else at all. As ever, we need to hear from you, of course, your stories of lockdown madness, your tales of woe from the front line, of trying to run a business, and just what you are hearing from schools, from employers, and from the community as well. 0344 499 1000. We're going north of the border with Stuart Weir once again to find out just what is happening with the parliamentary inquiry into the Alex Salmond affair. Will he give evidence? Is Nicola Sturgeon under even more pressure? Uh, it's all gone a bit mad once more. And we're joined by Kevin O'Sullivan with a look ahead to the weekend and today's virtual G7 meeting uh, where Joe Biden will, for the first time, uh, lock horns with the likes of Emmanuel Macron and Boris Johnson, of course. Susie Dent's here as well. She's a lexicographer. Uh, she's going to be telling us why so many people have learned a new language, even though you can't go anywhere to speak it. Plus, Lisa Francesca Nand will walk us through what the latest news is from the world of travel. And, of course, it's Friday, so it's time for the Perrier Awards, an homage to my brilliance in broadcasting uh, with producer Marta Malagón. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest-growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham, Talk Radio. Now, I can't think of anyone I'd rather talk to on a Friday morning than uh, Baroness Kate Hurry uh, of Lyle Hill and Rathlin, non-affiliated peer, of course, in the House of Lords. Kate, a very good morning to you.
2: Good morning, Mike.
3: Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Now, let's kick off with uh, with Northern Ireland because um, Sammy Wilson wrote an interesting piece which you tweeted out yesterday about the latest situation in Northern Ireland. Nothing much seems to have changed, really, since the last time you and I spoke, has it?
2: No, there's been a, a lot of talking, um, both publicly and then behind the scenes as well. And, of course, we've seen the... Um, the joint chair of the committee uh, come over and well zoom over and uh, talk to industry in northern ireland yesterday uh, talk to people in the republic of ireland talk to civil society a lot of talking going on um not sure how much listening mm. and how much action and uh, next week the joint committee will meet i think one of the interesting things that's happened since we last spoke was that michael gove is going to be moving on from being the key person um, involved in the Northern Ireland Protocol. He has chaired it and he's been involved for some time. Mm. And now we're getting David Frost, who was the lead negotiator for um, United Kingdom all during the trade talks. He is coming into the cabinet from the beginning of March and is going to take over that joint chairmanship. And Mm. I, I can welcome that because I think he's... He's, I, I do feel confident that he actually realises what has to be done. And I'm hopeful that that change will also show the European Union that we are going to be tougher. Mm. And frankly, all this tinkering won't make any difference. What has to change is the actual protocol. And everyone now who's seeing the repercussions of it, even if we fix some of those things, and some probably will get fixed, it still doesn't change the basic premise that the constitutional basis of Northern Ireland has been changed without the consent Mm. of people from Northern Ireland. And that's that's very much against the um, Belfast Good Friday agreement.
3: Well, that's right. And I
2: mean, last
3: time you and I spoke, I think you said Boris Johnson could make this happen without much difficulty, if he so wished. Um, Does he feel that, uh, that David Frost is more likely to be able to deliver that, do you think, than Michael Gove is?
2: I I I think I think he's the, the, the relationship between Boris Johnson and David Frost is very is very close in the sense that I think he trusts him, him yeah. very much. Uh, I'm not saying he doesn't trust Michael Gove, but you never know these <laughs> days what's going on between the Goveites and the and the um, the Borisites. But yes. certainly he trusts David Frost more. And you know I, I know I know people just think oh you're just trying to stick up for Boris, but I do genuinely feel that he knows the prime minister knows that this was a a mistake it was a a mistake that could have been avoided and it has to be altered because he does not not want to go down as the prime minister who has caused the first cracks in the breakup of the united kingdom
3: and sammy wilson refers to the tensions and obviously we know the historic tensions in northern ireland um is your sense that that has got worse since say last week or the week before is it getting worse or is it kind of leveling out.
2: Well, I think the anger is just as great and indeed even more or when people, you know, as a family, perhaps, who mm. haven't had much to do with this or taken much interest, suddenly if they're affected by it, if they suddenly can't get something or they've got a relative who, who they know is going to have to bring a pet over at some stage, these kinds of little little things, but they all add up. So there is anger still there. I think what is what is worrying, and, you know, I've said this before, is there is a feeling that the, the, the those who wanted the protocol, those who want who didn't want a border, who, who would be the nationalist more the, or the Republican element in Northern Ireland. They have somehow managed to get more results because of the threats of violence. And that's worrying for a lot of young people from the pro-union mm. community, because many of them will be thinking, well, hang on, we've managed to get nowhere, but then we haven't threatened violence. So, you know, I, I think that's something that, again, Downing Street needs to be aware of. And I think everyone who cares about peace in Northern Ireland has to recognise that that is also something. That the key thing about the Belfast Agreement it was to bring, you know, stability to Northern Ireland and confidence that nothing could ever change mm. unless there was a, a, a majority of people in Northern Ireland who wanted to change it. And that has been completely um, sort of taken away now. And that's that's what's worrying.
3: Yeah. And what about the ports? Are they still operating as if they're not really there in the sense that anyone who comes in and stuff <laughs> well, no, basically back... is allowed to come in?
2: <laughs> well, they're back. The, the, the workforce has gone back um, at the beginning... of of this week Mm. but there was like quite a long period when things lorries were coming in and out without being checked and as I always said you know the world didn't end there wasn't any major major issue but now now they are back to checking and of course things will get worse when the transition period ends and more health certificates have to be brought in so you know it, it is difficult and I understand that people you know listening in England and perhaps well I think particularly England sort of probably sort of shrug and say oh goodness this not Northern Ireland who cares really and I think that's very very sad because you know Northern Ireland people have have put in a huge amount to the United Kingdom over the years and we you know we we deserve to be listened to and when they say as all the political parties from the pro-union side are saying this can't work then it's got to Something has to happen and it has to happen
3: soon. Also, I think we have to look at the Northern Ireland situation as part of a a, a round in which, you know, we have a problem in Scotland with the SNP trying to break away from from the union. Uh, Wales has got its own version of independence that they want to have. And I think, you know, when you put it in that context, it's a much more important story for us.
2: Well, it's, it's, I think you're absolutely right, Mike, because the links, you know, between Scotland and Northern Ireland, the Ulster-Scots sort of aspect, they're very, very strong. People are very close. There's a lot of movement back yes. and forward between Scotland and Northern Ireland. And, I, you know, I have no doubt about it that... Uh, what what happens in one part of uh, you know what happens in Northern Ireland would affect the, the, what the thinking in Scotland and what would happen in Scotland mm. would affect the thinking in Northern Ireland. So the the government has now put in um, you know someone who is pushing and supporting the union you know to actually portray the benefits of the union generally the United Kingdom uh, and that's particularly of course in the in the context of Scotland and the Scottish elections. So I I think there is an awareness that maybe we've just taken things for granted for too long mm. that everything's fine and normal, when actually behind the scenes there's been a lot of movement.
3: No, you're right. I mean, I've never met more people from Northern Ireland than I met when I was working in Scotland, apart from when I went to Northern Ireland. So, you know, it's very much a, <laughs> a, a sort of a parade of, especially young people uh, who go and study in Scotland and stay and, and continue to work in Scotland because perhaps the job opportunities are better. and it's. Oh, not of it.
2: course... Uh- I forgot to say, Mike. There was the announcement that we might we might be getting a a, a, um, a tunnel between yes. Lauren and Rock Stra- Now, you know that um, I, I'm not. I don't think that that was announced to try and take away. You know the. The worry about the protocol because actually it wouldn't make any difference if there was a tunnel there tomorrow. We'd mm. be probably trying to stop the be custom check at one end of it. So, um but that's interesting because it would it would definitely make a huge difference. You know, is I get very cross about when you know all the, the, the people go on about air flying and so on because if you live in Northern Ireland and you're traveling regularly to England, there's a lot of work workforce mm. do a lot of workers go every Monday morning come back on Friday or Thursday night and you know to do that by anything other than flying is a mammoth journey either you know Liverpool overnight or you have to go up to Scotland and and then take a boat so you know getting getting a a tunnel would be wonderful I I'm I'm very supportive of it but you know I I'm I'm not um, someone who understands very much about the building of something like that and it seems to me to be an amazing project but of course if we did it with the channel tunnel we can
3: do it there well i think so and also there's a guy who uh, has been a- advocating the building of a bridge because we spoke to him i think some w- some months ago and uh, one of the in- impediments apparently to it is there's an awful lot of sunken world war Two ships uh, in that particular part of the sea uh, some of which may have unexploded ordnance on them so you know it might be it might be a while before they make that safe but let's talk about the lockdown yeah i think uh, oh, sorry go on
2: oh. No, no. I was just going to say yes. They dumped a lot of ammunition down there, and I think that that would have to be very carefully, obviously looked at before you, yes. you want to go through a tunnel that's full of right. some ammunition.
3: Yeah, let's talk about the uh, the lockdown. lockdown. It seems to be sort of fragmenting a little bit, as far as I can see, from one country to another in the union. You know, the Scots have announced that they're going to put some schools back tomorrow sorry monday boris johnson of course with his roadmap coming out on monday wales have extended their lockdown i think you guys in northern ireland have had an extension to that as well um what's the feeling where you are
2: well i think you almost feel now that people have just become almost apathetic and accepting that you know nothing's going to happen for some time yesterday we got the announcement that our uh, very that are pretty are our nursery schools and our, our very first first three years at primary school would go back on March the 8th. Mm. But the actual lockdown has been extended. We were going to be locked down until the early, early March. It's now going to be the 1st of April with a review on March the 18th. I think the executive were keen not to have everyone out and around on St. Patrick's Day, March the 17th. Uh, But of course, that end of the lockdown. Well, it's not the end of the lockdown. It's the announcement Mm. of the next discussion about the end of the lockdown um, would be just just fall before the Easter weekend. And I imagine they will not want uh, people to be out and around at Easter weekend. So I think it's going to come slowly. but they have made a few minor changes. We weren't even allowed click and collect, and that has now been brought back mm. from March the eighth for certain types of goods that are supposedly now essential. Electrical goods have now been brought into that. Baby clothes, some other things. But I think you know there's there's quite a demand for garden centres to be opened yeah. again because this is a time when people want to actually get their their garden um, you know projects <laughs> um, to grow right. and put, put in. So. It's it's a bit depressing, quite honestly, because yeah. the weather is depressing. Um, people can't mix in any way whatsoever, and but there's no real um, organised opposition to it. You know, people have begun to accept. And um, what worries me is that they're now using, although the R rate has gone down, they're now using the whole thing about the variant and the, the, this terrible variant. Mm. And my worry is that every time we're just about getting back to thinking of moving on. Um, another variant will come and we will end up even without vaccination, yes. you know, even with vaccinations. Well, the vaccination well. programme has gone very well in Northern Ireland. Well, it's gone very
3: well. Um, in I, most, I had in, my in, first in... vaccination OK, good. I mean, it's gone very well in most places, but there are still kind of dichotomies, aren't there? I've got a, an interesting tweet from somebody today who said, you know, so we're told that we can't come out of lockdown despite the fact that vaccinations are working very well. Um, but at the same time, we're told we can't travel anywhere unless you have a vaccination because that will make it safer. And it's like, well, the two, both, the two things can't both be right.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, if once people, uh, the most vulnerable have had their second vaccination and, and, and the time has passed. Then I really can't see that there's any reason why we can't go back to a form of normality with mm. obviously people still being careful. Um, Travelling abroad is always going to be an issue now because it will be depending on what's happening in, in other countries. And, mm. you know, there is a, a real... Um, a lot of people go to Spain, obviously, from Northern Ireland. There's direct Spanish flights. They're not operating at the moment. But, you know, as soon as that happens, people are going to want to travel. Yeah. And I I imagine the vaccination, um, you know, if you've had your vaccination, that would help. But I I imagine that some airlines in some countries will demand it. So it's not really a question of a vaccination passport. I mean, I think what I would really oppose would be anything in this country that you're not allowed to do unless you've been you've had your passport, um, because that that really would be unfair. But I think there's always been issues when you travel abroad about countries demanding certain mm. things. And I don't think we can you know, do much about that.
3: No, I think that's right, because, of course, um, a lot of young people are now starting to say, well, what's what's uh, what's the problem uh, here? Why are you discriminating against no. us? Because we're not going to get the vaccine until perhaps later in the year. And if you're telling us that we can't do certain things without a vaccine, then you better give it to us.
2: Well, exactly. And especially for those, you know, young people who have been so badly hit on their education side and on their their first jobs and their apprenticeships and all of that. You know, mm. they they are. The, I mean, it's the very young, that age, the sort of teenage age and then the very elderly who have really had to um, bear the brunt of this. There's an awful for a lot, not a lot of people. Have genuinely gone about their normal business. I mean, you just look at the roads; how busy some of them still are, and the numbers of. You know, I, I've I've a great a great. Um, uh, you know, I really do admire all the lorry drivers and the the van drivers who are out there delivering things, you know, as normal, and they don't seem to get the, the kind of respect that they should do mm. for being. They're the people and um, people who work in the supermarkets and so on have, that have kept. The country going really, yes. haven't
3: they? Well, exactly right. Let's talk a little bit about Keir Starmer. He got up and made his keynote speech yesterday, ah. managed to talk about the economy without mentioning Brexit, as it was pointed out. Um, it wasn't exactly barnstorming, was it?
2: It was, no, it wasn't. And um, I, I don't think, I can never see um, Sir Keir um, uh, making a barnstorming speech. That's <laughs> not his style. No. Um, I mean lawyers lawyers do tend on the whole to be pretty oh dear, I'm gonna upset people but be pretty boring sort of people because they're they're not necessarily people apart from they're...
3: Jerry Hayes, I think you'd probably say, wouldn't you?
2: Oh yeah, well because he's a he's he's a one off, yeah. But um no I think I think it was a, it was It it is difficult for me if if I'm being fair, because, you know, no one's really interested at the moment. They're interested in COVID and they're interested in things to do with, you know, the repercussions of Brexit. And he he kind of wasn't even willing to even talk about that. Mm. And I I didn't really pick up very much about it. I mean, I didn't really understand his his, um, bond um, issue uh, suggestion and how that would differ from some of the things that we've already got. So I think it was just a feeling that he probably had to say something or do something because there were a few people who were beginning to forget that he was actually the leader of the party. Yeah.
3: Well, he seems to have run into a kind of, um, you know, sandpit, if you like, of, of, of nothingness where he can't get any traction really on anything. Um, even his own party are now beginning to say maybe he was the wrong choice. And you do worry, because as much as I'm not a fan of the Labour Party um, and and haven't really been since the days of Tony Blair, funnily enough, even though everybody seems to now hate Tony Blair, I mean, the Labour Party then was electable, it was sensible, it was able to do things uh, which a lot of people were quite in support of. But um, Uh. you don't want to be in a situation where you have an opposition party that will literally never have a chance of getting into government.
2: I think our, uh, the strength of our democracy has always been that we've had a strong government and a strong opposition. Mm. And, you know, in the last number of years, that has kind of drifted away with the coalition government and then, you know, with with um, a very big majority. And if you've got a very big majority, as the government has, it's absolutely crucial that there is a, a, a strong united opposition. And because of the way that, you know, Jeremy Corbyn went and the way that the whole party split over that split in the sense of Mm. being deeply divided, he, he that we haven't seen that. I think it's also been much more difficult because of the restrictions in Parliament to, you know, not to be able to have that sort of roar of support behind yeah. him when he's standing up and trying to be, um, you know, the opposition leader on the prime minister's questions. So it is a difficult time for him. But I mean, he, he hasn't, I think, cut through in the way he, he as someone else with a different personality could have and that is worrying and you're absolutely right you know you do need whatever you think of anybody any other political party you do need a good opposition and certainly the Lib Dems are not going to provide
3: it (laughs) well I mean they've completely disappeared altogether I mean if it wasn't for Keir Starmer being um probably the most boring politician on earth you know Ed Davey would cease to exist I mean I don't even know what he does
2: I don't I don't think i I probably prefer to talk about it David or the Lib I I I find the way the Lib Dems behaved during the whole the whole of the referendum campaign and the, and the four years after it was just so despicable really yes. that um I cannot imagine anyone who voted to leave ever wanting to even think of voting for the Lib Dems again.
3: No, I think you're absolutely right, Baroness. Howie, as ever, great to talk to you. Have a good weekend. Uh, with what best you can uh, do things uh, with, because of course uh, there's not an awful lot you can do uh, at this moment in time. Mid morning with Mike Graham, Talk Radio, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, you might think there's a lot of government money going out to help various people who are on furlough, companies who are unable to operate because at the moment they have to close down, hospitality industry, uh, which is being uh, subsidised to a large extent, not in a a way which is actually keeping it afloat, by the way. But nevertheless, billions and billions of pounds of government money are being uh, passed out to various sectors of the economy. But not everyone Uh, of course, is actually a beneficiary uh, of what is going on. And we're going to speak now uh, to uh, Mr. Pothole, uh, also known as Mark Morrell, uh, because he's got some news for us on the uh, problems with the roads in this country, because despite the fact that nobody is supposedly going to work, or at least not many, uh, the roads are pretty busy. Uh, Mr. Pothole, very good morning to you. Are you there? Yes, I should be. Yes, you are now. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks for uh, for getting in touch with us. Tell us what's going on out there in the big wide world, because it seems that uh, uh, that local councils, never short of uh, a few bob, are, are using the pandemic as an excuse not to f- fix the roads.
4: I mean, to be fair to them, uh, government uh, promised uh, an extra two and a half billion pounds over five years mm-hmm. when we did National Puddle Day last year, which you covered when I went around in an orange tank. In the tank? Yeah, you
3: still got the tank.
4: Yeah, in fact, I think they get a bigger one. The roads are that bad, <laughs> to be honest. Um, and we, we did the same thing this year. I mean, Ultra Crate, who sort of worked with me for National pot all Day, yeah. uh, we did a survey because you couldn't go out and do anything grandiose. Mm. So government this week announced £500 million for a pothole fund, and everybody thinks, great. We've had all the MPs jumping on the back of it. In the background, uh, central government have cut to 400 million pounds from their uh, maintenance budgets as well so they've given a bit with one hand and taken a lot away with the other hand mm. um, and at the end of the day the roads are failing um, they keep putting little bits of money in there I mean that to put it in context that bit of money from a pile fund isn't enough to actually uh, just uh, carry out the maintenance in Kent itself. Council's under tremendous pressure because of the pandemic and the the social care costs are going up alarmingly. So, yeah, I can be their biggest critic, Mike, as you know, and I'm all over them when when we get cheap repairs that fail within a week that I get the situation of. um, But at the end of the day, unless government really take this serious and put into place a long-term investment plan for resurfacing we will constantly repair piles and they're getting worse and worse and as you said less traffic around we're going to get the beast of the east blamed for the situation the roads are failing through decades of under-investment there is an economic argument that it's estimated that badly maintained roads cost this country five billion pounds a year all i'm saying is if you actually invested two billion pounds a year to uh, get rid of the biggest bugbear for uh, road users and, and 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 the like um create jobs apprenticeships but a long-term investment in fact it would make economic sense and it would help in a situation where people have you know lost their jobs through the pandemic and it would spread jobs across the country
3: yeah the trouble is, though, Mark, we've got a situation now where uh, doing things for the motorists is not considered to be the right way to go, is it? Because we've heard—I think it was only last week—Grant Shapps' plan of uh, a £27 billion spend on on improving the roads network in this country has now been stymied. It would appear by a load of green groups who have said, "Oh no, you shouldn't be doing that because, of course, you know, you're going to be causing more pollution if more people are driving." But I always point out to people: by far and away, the biggest form of transport in this country is by v- vehicles the cars or vans or lorries or buses or whatever it is that's how most people get around and therefore the roads on which they drive must be in good shape but they're not.
4: Yeah, exactly. I mean, we all get our goods and services through the road network. It is the blood supply of the UK economy. And I agree about the, the, the thing with uh, the environmental impact. Mm. But if you look at cyclists, that, that um, survey we carried out, alarming figures, over 80% of cyclists are having to take dangerous evasive action because of puddles on the road. Yeah. We should be encouraging more cyclists. And they are at risk far more than, uh, you know, me, you or me driving over a puddle um, in a vehicle. They're not assessed properly in terms of uh, the risk to cyclists. So there's an argument there. Um, yes, and I think investment uh, in, in, in technology, and I believe sort of hydrogen cars are maybe more of the answer than electric cars, because mm. I don't think National Grid really could cope with the actual matter. It was all plugging in our cars at one time. No. Yes, and it needs a long-term plan. But these governments are very good at sound bites and bits of money. And, I mean, I was involved in the Transport Select Committee Committee, uh, where a lot of MPs put a lot of work in and come up with a report about uh, uh, trying to improve our road network for all road users, not just motorists, all road users, yeah. and we got lip service from the government, and uh, that's set in the back burner. My view is, what's the point of having transport select committees now? I'd never get involved in one again because it's just it's just a, it's a whitewash in terms of things unless they put in a long term plan with asset management and investment and improved standards. I mean, there isn't. Uh, there is now a national training course for repairing potholes that wasn't there before I was involved in developing. I think every guy that's out there should have to go through and be trained to do it because yeah. we see the uh, bucket of tar and shovel men too far too many times.
3: Well, exactly right. And I mean, the number of times you also see, particularly around London, because obviously that's where I drive most of the time. Um, the number of places where they're digging up roads um, and taking forever to do so, you can only uh, really take the view that it's not about money, certainly not here it isn't, uh, it's about trying to stop people from driving. You know, and I'm, I'm, I'm not going to agree with you about encouraging more people to cycle, I'm afraid, because we've got enough of them as it is. I'd like to see them cycling every day rather than just when it's nice weather, because as soon as the rain comes on or it gets a bit chilly, you know, the old Lycra brigade are back in their cars.
4: Uh... Well, yeah, I mean, we should be encouraging cycling for people's health and benefits. I mean, if you look at other countries, um, don't get me on cyclists because I def- I would defend them because of the injuries. And actually, had yeah, have been involved with uh, when well, I've done some uh, documentaries before with uh, people who've lost family. I know it's very difficult. Potholes. For, I, know it's pothole,
3: I know potholes are a particular problem for cyclists. And I, I, I get that. My tongue is slightly in my cheek before. But who's actually responsible, Mark, for filling in the potholes in any given place? Is it down to the local council?
4: Yeah, the Highways Authority for that area are responsible. Um, They're not hard enough in terms of utilities that dig up roads and don't do the uh, reinstatement to the correct standards, but uh, Highways authorities and councils have cut inspectors that uh, should be policing it far more because it's all been short-termism rather than realising they can penalise them and fine them Mm. uh, and and things. I mean, it needs a real change. I mean, in that attitude within... uh, sort of highways authorities and even I think the central government's almost like they accept potholes, we can't do nothing about it and we just do the best we can and, and I don't accept that. I think you could do far more sensibly uh, and use some smart techniques like thermal repairs that not used enough but there's no money in it for a certain people who, who supply the tarmac. But I think unless you actually, uh, you know, we need a czar to actually get in there and say to government, right, this is what you need to do, this is the plan going forward over the next 25 years to get our roads back up to the standard they are, starting with asset management plans Plans, including quality of works, batching work, uh, and 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 really uh, t- shake it by the scruff of its neck and change things. Unless you do that, every, every you know, as much as I like coming on to talk radio and spoke to you, I'll be doing this uh, till me I'll go to the grave. But uh, <laughs> we're you know, Well, let's know.
3: hope we we have slightly more influence than that. Mark, listen, good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. But uh, maybe you should put yourself up for pothole czar. You seem to know more about it than most people I talk to. Mark Morelde, also known as Mister Pothole, uh, turned up in Parliament Square was it last year, Um, in a tank? I think it was, Um, to to point out just how bad potholes actually are in this country and if you drive around in any uh, way which is more than occasionally you will be held up not just because uh, there's a lot of traffic out there now but also because most of the road systems that we have have got a temp- i mean i would guarantee that on almost every journey you make now you come across at least one temporary traffic light and how often do you come to that temporary traffic light to find that one section of the road has been closed off only then to find that nobody's actually there doing anything They've closed it off, they put those orange and white fences up, or they put cones up. But there's nobody, nobody actually there fixing anything at all, most of the time. It's an absolute disgrace, I tell you. Mid morning with Mike Graham. Cork radio. Now, let us, without further ado, uh, take a trip to Brighton. Joel is a medical student there where he is unusually able to go to lectures uh, in person, physically. uh, But many of his colleagues who are other students at other universities are not able to do so. Uh, He's with Stop the Student Ripoff Campaign. Joel, very good morning to you.
0: Morning, mate. Thanks for having me on.
3: Thank you very much indeed. Tell us, um, first of all, about how much students are paying for the privilege of not being able to go to university. Because I think that, first of all, kind of sums it all up, doesn't it?
0: Hmm. Um, so that's kind of the key thing. Students are paying. I mean, you said rightly when the government changed the amount the university could charge, most of them went to nine thousand to 9,250. So you've got that cost you pay a year, right. and then accommodation, um, other expenses come university. You're looking at around another six to nine thousand pounds as well, and you might get a maintenance loan to help with that. But in total, you're taking about eighteen k each year that either in debt that you're paying, and the times up by three for the average student, longer if you're doing a course like mine or other students. So you're edging towards, you know, to 40, 50, 60K in total for your three years. And this year, especially when you've not received anything like what you were promised or what you had in the year beforehand. And I think that's one of the reasons why we started the Stop Student rip-off campaign. Yeah. And in, in tandem with a lot of other people who've been saying this for months, this isn't a new thing, but the government's just decided to basically say, it's up to universities and will ignore students and hope that it goes away. Yeah. And that, frankly, not going to go away because well, the, it's just not yeah, good enough.
3: that's the problem, isn't it? With government policy in which they believe things will go away. They just never do. They just get worse and worse and worse. A lot of people think, uh, Joel, that at the time back in September, um, students probably shouldn't have gone back because um, aside, nobody's blaming them for it. But going but sending lots of young people around the country into, you know, halls of residence where they were going to be mingling quite closely together was never going to be a great idea for the uh, control of a virus.
0: Mm. And I think that's that's kind of, that's really been the shocking thing is whichever way you come down on that, either you say you shouldn't have sent them back and therefore they shouldn't have had to take up contracts for 12 months, they shouldn't have had to pay the fees, but it seems as if we were sent back on the hope that we'd pay the fees, say nothing about it. And when the inevitable happened, which was that we had to shut in-person teaching down and send students home or students were stuck on campus... Then nothing's being done to remedy that, and that's the that's the killer thing for us. Is that if you've sent students back in and things have changed, fine. That might be outside of government control. And it's up to the government because their policies are the reason why now students find themselves locked into some of these contracts where they're paying for accommodation mm-hmm. facilities that they don't use or they can't access. And that's just not good enough. To no, have
3: that. I, th- I, I don't think there's any doubt about the fact that the reason why, um, the universities wanted you there in person was to basically yeah. take your money uh, and yeah. the hell with the consequences. And I wonder mm-hmm. how many people are in that situation where they have paid for 12 months or at least nine months, the academic year, uh, in, in, in either a hall of residence or in a private, uh, landlord accommodation situation um and what are they supposed to do because presumably uh, none of them are there
0: yeah and i mean there are what 2.4 million students in the uk 70 percent of us live in private accommodation because after your first and second you've gone you know you're talking a huge millions of students who are in private accommodation first of all that we're told to come back they're paying landlords and either they're in they're in two categories either they live so far away that for them you know they've come back Uh, because they didn't want to uh, run the risk of paying for 12 months and not using anything or they've gone back home so they can be close to their family so their mental health doesn't suffer etc but then they're still paying for flats for bills for everything that they don't use and no one seems to be saying anything about that now some universities if you're in accommodation have done you know we're trying to be fair on this a few universities i think glasgow gave a two week refund and manchester met gave a two weeks of your isolating back But two weeks out of a whole year is, you know, it's just a drop in the ocean compared to what university students are paying for their accommodation, let alone coming to the quality of education that they're paying for and not receiving at all
3: because one of the things that we've covered a lot on this show of course is is you know homeschooling and kids at school working from home and a lot of teachers a lot of head teachers i've spoken to say that there's no way you can substitute working from home and learning from home uh, for actually being in a in a a theater or a lecture room or or a classroom and it could be as little as 20 percent retention of what you're actually learning and also you know it's going to university is not about just sitting in in lectures learning stuff is it it's about socializing it's about being with other people um, and sooner or later presumably you would wish that the government could put people back in physically to buildings
0: yeah mike you make the best point because actually it wasn't just teachers if i remember last year and the years i've been in university every time a student was sick or had to catch up and use online resources Mm. the the strapline you could ask any student was online teaching is no substitute for in-person learning over and over again, uses a stick kind of to beat students who, you know, had to go off sick or, you know, maybe they were hungover and didn't turn up, whatever it was, (laughs) we were always told until last September, online teaching is no substitute. And now suddenly it's equivalent. And therefore, you know, universities are saying because the government said, oh, it's up to universities to decide if their education quality is good enough and demands a refund because of it. And so it kind of seems, well, you told us for the last five years, online person is no substitute. Now you're saying, avoid paying actually it's good enough with we're, we're meeting all our all our criteria stop talking to us you don't need to discuss anything about it yeah i think that's just yeah it's laughable really. yeah
3: it's funny though isn't it now you're mm. able to uh, go to, to to university in person joel because you're a medical student how is how has that a me- a sort of decision been arrived at and if you can do it why can't everybody else
0: so I think for me, the decision has been arrived at because um, our university, when you get to the clinical years, you're in hospital buildings and right. they're still open as essential places for learning and teaching. So actually where I am now is the medical school teaching library. And I'll, be, I'll give credit to my medical school. They've done their best to give a blend of in-person where we can, if it's spaced out, distance, et cetera. And there are loads of lecture theatres, you know, they're left lying empty on actual university campuses here at Sussex and Brighton. And so it does beg the question, if they can do it for us, why isn't there been a concerted effort? And I hope Boris Johnson in, um, in this speech on Monday and think plans he lays out, will come up with a plan that's more than just saying, I'll oh, wait till basically April and come back and see what happens. Is that right. so actually, if we can do it for students like me, then perhaps there is a case for saying, well, we could have done it, for other students we haven't done it and therefore that's why this refund that the stop the student Off campaign is is you know we're, we're fighting for is so necessary because we've not been given the quality that we were we were promised at the start yeah. of the year for many students and
3: also your experience is is entirely different you know from mm. mine for example i mean obviously mine. My, my went to university so long ago that uh, not that many people used to go in those days but i mean you went there um you know i'm glad to see that people are still getting drunk and missing lectures because that's what we did a lot of but you know um the whole uh the idea of of, of this of this sort of you know lockdown is that it's not good for younger people particularly because you know we've done an awful lot of stuff I mean I talked to Neil Oliver uh, the TV presenter every week and he was saying you know I've been around the world I've been to lots of places I've got kids I've done lots of different jobs but you guys need to be out there um, you know experiencing things
0: Mm. And it's, you know, no university in their prospectuses before this pandemic was saying, we just do teaching, their main sell was we give you the social experience, we give you the, you know, unique work experience, we give you this, the experience on campuses, we give you so much more, they were all about the added value more than teaching. Mm. And so it seems flies in the face of that for them to say, well, as long as we meet the teaching criteria, then we're giving university experience. It's not the same, it's not what students expected. Um, and you know, to just turn around and say, oh, it's that it's equivalent and because it's a pandemic, we get it. Most students, you know. Ask, understand that, you know, we can't have things exactly as they are, but to not even try and attempt it and for the government to this around. It's kind of, we're being paid pass the parcel with where, you know, the government says, oh, it's not for us. Go to the Office of Students. The yeah. Office of Students says, oh, you're autonomous, universities. and um, We advise you to do this, but, you know, we can't really do anything. And, you know, a, a lot of people have been taken in by that and think there's nothing you can do. But I remember George Osborne able to retrospectively change, you know, the fee status in yeah. 2016. So the government does have the power to do that and to say that they can't or you you know, they're leaving to universities I think it's just shirking their responsibilities and you know not living up to the standards that they themselves when Boris Johnson was telling students to return mm. and the university was saying it was safe to return have done they've just kind of you know they, they're really saying one thing and doing another and yeah. it's not really good enough for many no, students
3: there's no way that the, the government can now hide behind any form mm. of, uh, of, of legality where they say oh no we can't change that because they've changed so much over the course mm. of the last year including uh, inventing a new crime uh, you know filling out a form wrong for which you can be fined 10,000 and go to jail yeah. for 10 years, you know. Mm. So there's no way that they can't change anything if they want to. <laughs> have you got any specific kind of set of demands, as it were, Joel? I mean, what are you asking for?
0: Yeah, so the, the three demands are essentially, we've said the first demand is to have a third off, so a third reduction in fees, and that should be um, given back to students as a re- refund this year. And um, the second demand is to do better Um, And there are loads of people who have strategies about the piecemeal mental health provision that's been given to students. Uh One of the biggest things that's been so sad to see for myself and many students I've spoken to before I came on this and was just how badly the support is for them at this moment in time. People are saying, you know, you you send an email for an appointment to speak to someone, etc. It takes a few weeks. You know you go on back through this process students you know are committing suicide students have depressed studies have shown this throughout that that's happened and we really think more needs to be done now rather than waiting because there will be there was already an epidemic of student mental health mm. problems and i think that's only going to get worse and then the third demand is also kind of a smaller one but to reduce the interest rate that students pay um, on on their on their student loans right. and we kind of got to this first demand of the third off because if you consider what students are being given now mm. it's equivalent to what the open university does they say they few fit your studies around your life you're not they're not selling you you know the student experience they're selling you the teaching online and that's what they've always done and that costs around two-thirds of the cost Mm. The full-time degree and the full degree that universities offer. So it's only fair to that equivalent standard to say, well, then students this year definitely deserve that third off the fees that they've been they have paid.
3: That seems fair because also, I mean, you you always have a little bit of a drop-off rate from people who who decided the course is not for them. But I imagine mm. if you're sitting at home in your parents' house that you were desperately trying to get away from, uh, wondering whether this is ever going to end, you might think, you know what, I'm going to try and actually get a job instead.
0: Mm. And you can't you can't do that. And you're facing so many financial burdens, whether you know, you're know you an international student who has your fees really high. Um, and so you're not covered if the government changes legislation or, you know, you, you want to work because, you know, you've, you're paying 600 pounds a month for a house you don't live in. Yeah. And you want to help out in some way. You can't do that. I think there are so many financial burdens that students, whether they're rich or poor, are facing. And I think it's not a case of starting to say, as the government said, oh individual cases. There needs to be a blanket kind of, you know, Here, this has not been the good standard of education or the standard that you had last year. Mm. No one who was at university last year can say this is anything different. Tutors are trying their best. Again, I'm trying to give credit where it's due. Some tutors have gone above and beyond. But across the board, we're seeing that this is not the same standard of university that we were expecting or we were told that we'd have. And therefore, I think it's only right that they start to make plans to refund us at least a third. Um, of our university fees
3: yeah because that's a good point that you raise about overseas students i mean if you came here from another country only to find out that the university was basically shutting down uh, mm-hmm. and you were told to go home have they all had to go back to their home countries
0: it, it depends because i mean it depends on the country you're coming from and also whether the risk of you coming back in because we obviously the uk didn't have travel restrictions really mm-hmm. until this year so when that starts to come in you then have to think as a student in this term if I go home over Christmas, will I be allowed back in? Um, And if I have to spend, I think, I don't know too much about the visa situation, but I think there's a requirement to spend certain amounts of time in the UK as part of your your years of university in term to meet the requirements. So then you run the risk as an international student, especially, and I've spoken to a few of them of, well, I want to go home for Christmas and I'm in a country that's fine to let me come in, but then will I be able to come back to the UK afterwards? And so most of them, don't take the risk a lot of them don't bother because you know it's just too dangerous for them to say i'm going to go home and come back and i think there's so many areas if you look at people's situations where there's so many things it's just just not thought out mike i think the problem for me is the government put this policy in and obviously the lockdown you can argue it was good or bad or whatever about that but if you put a policy in you should think about what the consequences are of that and they seem to have just put the policy in thought nothing about the consequences, how to mitigate them and then seem surprised when students and other groups say you know this isn't good enough and we want something done it's almost like how dare you and we, we a lot of us are stunned saying well This was always going to happen. SAGE said in in October, I think they said, the adverse consequence of online teaching will be a drop in students' mental health. It Mm -hmm. was very clear that that was going to happen and seems to be nothing coming from the government bar the odd statement here or there we're doing what we can we've we've put funding for students to do this etc now make it all go away and that's that's frankly not good enough
3: no quite and at least joel you've got uh, you're preparing and being trained for something which is a tangible kind of job mm. that you're going to be doing sooner rather than later presumably but an awful lot of students are kind of just doing a degree they don't really know what it is they're going to do and for many of them i would imagine they're beginning to question whether that's a good idea
0: yeah i think this has really revealed a kind of wider topic which is probably something we won't have time to discuss in the current pandemic something going to be afterwards about the value of university and the value of the teaching you receive because i mean if you're receiving 10 hours a week and pay nine grand you might be thinking now even if that goes back to in person next year is that really good value for money will my course get me the job prospects money back that i want to earn the salary and that's a wider conversation i think many students are starting to see themselves more as consumers yeah. rather than beforehand where i think a lot of us just kind of went to university because it was a thing to do and it was an extension of our education now they're realizing we signed contracts we pay this money we borrow from the government in most cases to afford it but still we are consumers We've got a service that we were told we would be provided and that's not being done. And it's, uh, I think it's baffling when I said 2.4 million students, that's a big sector for nothing really to be done about. I mean, I saw the CMA have done work on what holiday makers, what people who are doing weddings should mm. do, about if you don't get the services you were paying for because of coronavirus, you get a refund. But it doesn't seem to be any specific advice tailored to the 2.4 million students in the UK. And I think that's a big number of people just mm. to ignore, whether personally or politically for the government. I think they're making a big mistake. Yes, of
3: course. And, and all of those students have got parents who vote and, and you vote mm. and everything else. So, listen, good luck with it, uh, Joel. We shall be pressing your case next time we get uh, somebody on from the government. We'll make sure they know uh, that you want something done and we'll do our best to get it done for you
2: when you're
0: ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at blue you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online choose your diamond and setting when you found the one you'll get it delivered right to your door with Mike Graham Talk Radio The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio
3: Welcome back to The Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio Now we haven't done much homeschooling this week partly because it's been half term of course and so generally speaking uh, most of the children of the country have had a little bit of a time off because they've spent so much time staring into computers uh, it's been a bit difficult for them and I have great sympathy for every parent who's been trying to homeschool their kids uh, over the course of the last... uh, several weeks and months because it's quite difficult particularly as they get older uh, and in some cases when they're younger as well because they can't just be doing it unsupervised but I'm delighted to say uh, we're joined today uh, by lexicographer language historian Susie Dent uh, great podcaster as well Susie a very good afternoon to you
1: afternoon Mike lovely to see you no
3: thank you for coming back on again now we're celebrating multiculturalism um, um, sorry, multilingualism uh, today. Yes. Um, I saw multi and immediately just put the second word on it by mistake. <laughs> um, because apparently loads of people have learned another language this year, which is great news, isn't it?
1: It's fantastic news. And it's just such a staggering statistic. So this was um, research done by Rosetta Stone, the Language Learning App. Yeah. And it said 3.3 3 million more of us have actually mastered another language um, in the last year, which is just, you know, phenomenal. It is. And, and really... Great as well, because let's face it, it's been such a tough time. And I know we've turned our hands to sourdough and you know, running and spring cleaning and that kind of thing, but we've obviously just thought, What is my aspiration? I've always wanted to learn another language, and now's the time. Well,
3: it's funny, isn't it? Because normally speaking, British people are very well known for not being very good at talking uh, in a different language. I mean, we've got lots of different uh, people from different countries in, in our country, all of whom speak pretty good English, and yet when we go abroad um it's pretty pathetic isn't it normally
1: yes it is um and and kind of embarrassingly so but i think particularly in the younger generations i mean there was a real spike i think in the 25 to 44 year olds um there was a huge increase in those who have actually um gone on a language learning app and not only just started but actually become fluent which Mm. just is testimony to the technology we have available now um So I think there's a real desire out there actually to not be complacent and not just uh, rely on spell checkers and um, handheld voice recognition things and to actually, you know, immerse ourselves in another culture.
3: It is kind of ironic, I suppose, that we can't actually go anywhere to practice uh, this new language that we've learned, (laughs) but hopefully that will come uh, in the next weeks and, and, and months. What's the what's the main sort of top language that people have been learning?
1: I think, well, Spanish is almost near near the uh, top of the list and it's it's been there for quite a long time. And um, that's one I, I have been trying to tackle at home myself using Rosetta Stone, in fact. And it's been a real escape for me. So, yes, you say, as you say, we can't actually go there ourselves at the moment. Um, but it's just, you can, you can travel, you can have a sort of holiday in your mm. mind, if you like. It's been a really lovely bit of escapism um, because you see these lovely visuals of places in Spain and you hear the rhythms and the sounds of the language that kind of wash over you and it's been it's been great but we've also apparently been trying um Arabic Korean Japanese um so you know trying other other scripts as well Russian is one that I would love to turn my hands at, and I obviously have to master Cyrillic there but I was gonna say
3: do you I mean is it can you learn a language kind of phonetically if you like rather than actually knowing particularly if you're looking at say Japanese or 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 Mandarin or Russian where you've got a different alphabet I mean even Greek I mean I remember go to Greece I mean, in most countries of Europe, I can figure out the menu. But when it's written in, in <laughs> Greek, obviously I can't, you know.
1: No, um, but it's never too late to try it, Mike, honestly. And I I work with Rachel Riley on Countdown, who is married to a Russian. Um, and she mastered Cyrillic really, really quickly really? Um, using a language learning app. Mm. Yeah. Um, so, you know, whereas probably when we were at school, it was very much kind of wrote learning based on lo- rote learning a lot of the time um you know th- there were certainly things like LinguaPhone out there where you could listen but they mm-hmm. weren't interactive um whereas the ones these days actually um brilliantly kind of test how you pronounce things, and then very gently kind of nudge you in the right direction if you don't quite get it right. And then you get a real sense of achievement once yeah. you've finished a, a particular module.
3: Well, there's no doubt that practice is what you need. I mean, whenever I go, I mean, my, my French is, is probably the best of the languages that I speak. And if I do go to France, by the time I've been there a couple of days, I've suddenly remembered an awful lot more of the words that I learned, albeit that I started learning when I was in secondary school.
1: Yeah, that's totally true. And um, it's definitely a muscle that you can tone up. You know, it might it might have got a bit slack over time, but it's definitely still there. And language learning has been proven to help with memory and concentration and um, creativity even uh, as well. But not only that, but with French, as you'll know, Mike, you can really start to decode your own language as well and have a better appreciation of the threads between the different languages. And um, that always just gives me a thrill when I see a connection that I had no idea existed. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's a brilliant training to
3: follow. Oh absolutely right. My my problem with looking at sort of you know um, I don't know videos and, and sounds and and, and, and scenes of, of foreign countries is I start to get I start to get grumpy because I'm not there. I mean last week I was looking <laughs> at a map and feeling sort of you know homesick for traveling i started sort of following this map across to france and then down into spain and remembered the road oh. that i'd driven you know from from Cadiz up through this french border and into the south of france you know and you know there's I a just... brilliant
1: german word for that actually homesickness for travel which really? is it's like the pain is called faraway pain and it's Fernweh. Oh, so good. it's like far sickness which is just gorgeous
3: yes i like that a lot the fr- well it's like schadenfreude isn't it it's that german but there is yes. no other proper word for that apart from the german one and so i mean i'm hoping that we'll be all able to travel fairly soon um what about your your own journey i mean are you um so what so what language are you do you feel most confident in now then
1: um, well, I've actually, because I did German and French at university, and they were my first loves, really. Um, and so I've actually been using um, the, the app to actually improve my German skills as well, because, you know, I, that's probably lain dormant for a very long time. Mm. And strangely, German for me, even though I've got no family connection there, whenever I start speaking it or hearing it, I feel like I'm going home or coming home. It's a really lovely kind of connection that I don't fully understand, um, but but it's really important to right. me. Um, So it doesn't just have to be a new language. I think you can go back to the ones like you with your French that you you have, you know, a fairly good grounding in and then actually just brush it up all over again. and, And you get the thrill a second time.
3: And the survey that I've got in front of me here says that more people think now that language learning should be compulsory at GCSE level. It should really, shouldn't it?
1: Yeah, I think it, I think it was back in 2004 that it fell off um, and I don't think it sh- ever should have fallen off, actually, because there's so much to be gained, as we have said, from from learning and understanding another culture mm. and kids love it. You know, I went to a primary school um, a couple of years ago where the kids were learning um, Mandarin um, there were German speakers in there, there were Spanish speakers and French speakers, and they were just awash with all these languages. And they they knew words in every single one of them. Their brains were so kind of malleable. Yeah. And it was fantastic to see. And many of the apps that you can use, including Rosetta Stone, in fact, they emulate the way that kids learn language so that it's much more immersive it's not it's not not just sort of sitting down in front of a text but mm. you are immersed in the sounds you can see the things written down as well and it's it's just a really really productive approach
3: yes and for anyone who's ever stood anywhere in a foreign country wondering what on earth is going on I mean that's enough of an incentive in, its, in itself isn't it where you go I, wish I knew what these people were saying to me <laughs>
2: Yeah,
1: no, you know, I was thinking, uh, well, I've learnt two f- fantastic words, I think, somewhat with sort of culture. One is um, a very strange Finnish word that for me only the Finns could have. I think it's fallen out of use now, but it's an old measurement of distance of, I think, about eight kilometers, and it's polon and it translates as reindeer pee because it's the amount <laughs> of distance a reindeer can travel without having to urinate, which I think is brilliant. Um, and Presumably depends on the age t- of the reindeer. I suppose that <laughs> I suppose that's true, um, and also in Italian it was like a passeggiata, which is just a Sunday afternoon stroll. But it's so much more Passo than that. It's where I you... love Italian. Yes. Italian's great. It is beautiful, isn't it? But you, it's it's a stroll where you actually physically go out to meet people, and it's right. a real institution. And you couldn't understand that I think without learning the word and the story behind it.
3: No, brilliant, Susie. Great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed, Susie Dent. There mid-morning with
0: Mike Graham Talk Radio the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio
3: It's Friday, it's 12.48 and it's time for this Ladies and gentlemen, welcome
0: to the Perrier Awards
3: Delighted to see full compliance, one hundred percent compliance today. First time I think possibly this year.
5: Well I've told them that if they didn't comply, I was gonna take their titles away. Quite right
3: too. So uh, well
5: done. I'm ple- i pleased to announce that they you still remain working members of the independent you haven't, republic of my them. No, you, not yet.
3: Not yet. There's
5: always next Friday. There's
3: always next Friday. Very good. Welcome.
5: Welcome. And thank you. Yes. And good afternoon. And welcome again to the perry Rewards, this is where we look back over the past week of the so-called independent republic so of my we on yes. talk radio and choose our favorite moments as it's tradition mike the first perry goes to you Excellent. this time is a classic it's the rant of the week
3: uh, because we have to get away from the geeks it has to be done the geeks do not rule us and we will not be ruled by geeks it's that simple i'm not against geeks generally i just don't want them telling me what to do That's fair enough, isn't
5: it? I think it is. Yeah. I think it is. Um, So geeks.
3: So geek backlash.
5: Yes. So not nerds. No. Not dorks. Not
3: dorks, no. Geeks Geeks specifically, yes. I think nerds are specifically computer nerds, Ah. whereas geeks can be any kind of technocrat. It's like a generic term for. I think so. And also a dork is more sort of, I would say, dismissive Ah. for somebody who's not very good at something. Fair enough. Whereas geek, I think you know, yeah, encapsulates. I mean,
5: they're very good at what they do. To be fair, what they're trying to do, they're, they're doing everybody. well. Yeah, yeah, they're doing well. Right. Um, call of Richard in Manchester, Windsor Perry for the insult of the week.
4: Mm. It's very interesting, and you, as a, an ex-journalist up there, might be able to get a full. It would be very interesting. It's a bit to harsh. Get I mean, I'm far.
3: still a journalist. To be fair, Richard, I'm not an ex-journalist. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, he was sorry.
5: He was sorry. Yeah, he was also wrong. He was. Bless.
3: That's all right. But you know, thank you, Richard.
5: Yeah. Obviously, when I say insult, I don't mean insult. No. Also, I get insulted again.
3: all the time. I can take it.
5: Well, I was going to say, you've probably been called worse than ex-journalist. It's true. I so, have. Even,
3: even this morning.
5: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we won't go into no. that one. We now look back to uh, Monday evening. During the Downing Street COVID press conference, the Prime Minister won a for the pronunciation of the week.
0: What's the name of that drug again, Chris? Tocilizumab. Say again? Tocilizumab. Toc. Tociliz We're to get this right, man. <laughs> Toczilumab. Is it Toc? Toczilumab. Near enough, PM. Something like that. Okay, we go. This is the one we got to get. We've we got to make sure we get this right. Talk. Talkilizumab. map, There you go. Okay, we're gonna to have to know that as well as we know dexmedetomidine. map, folks. That's the one.
3: I think that's a good definition of Boris Johnson's uh, premiership, isn't it?
0: Yes. Near enough. <laughs> yeah. That'll do.
3: That's
5: very good. Near <laughs> enough. Yeah, close enough. That'll, Let's that'll, move that'll do, on. Yeah. To be fair, it's a very tricky word, and my Graham himself also won a parry for the pronunciation of the week.
3: Talkilizumab. <laughs> Talkilizumab. No. <laughs> <laughs> what? I could say it before, right? Toka <laughs> Toka <Tocilizumab. Tocilizumab>. anyway. <laughs> Oh, well, yeah, because I was able to do it before that. You did. And then when I deliberately tried to do it again, yeah, and it was spelled in front of me. I still couldn't, yeah.
5: Do it. I must say, like the first time when you got it right, I was a bit disappointed because yeah, I, I was like, hey, free content. I know, which didn't come sorry. my way. So don't worry, I always appreciate when you say all these things wrong. Yes, um, so what was it?
3: Tokelazimabub, I think I'm saying. See, I saw even spelled in front of me. Tokelazimabub.
5: No, there's no second. Is
3: that like Beelzebub? The master of uh, darkness.
5: That's from the Bible, isn't it? Yeah, but
3: Elzebub's the devil. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
5: Belzebub.
3: Don't ever... That's um, how I
5: learned it in Spanish. How do you say it? Belzebub.
3: Belzebub. Belzebub. That's nice. Sounds like (laughs) a tapas dish.
5: (laughs) Well, we're talking about learning other languages, so that's the word of the day. Very good. Like it. Um, Now, off to the visual Ah, peril of the week.
3: This is new for anyone who's watching us on YouTube uh, or Facebook or Twitter. Sorry if you're not, but get on it because it's great fun.
5: Yes, correct. Uh, Talk Radio Evening's presenter, James Well, made it to the papers for ranting so hard he injured himself. Mm. Here's what happened.
4: Who has got to Boris? Who?
3: Which well, stupid scientist has got to Boris and told him that pubs and restaurants, there, the, the, those places were the least likely to... I've cr- cr- bit my flipping tongue now. <laughs> He's lucky he didn't swear there. I
5: was gonna say that was also the almost swear word yes. of, of the week that very never close happened. Run thing. Um James came on the show yesterday. Bless him. He's he got did. a sense of humour. He has. Yeah. I called him in the morning, I was like, Look, we just want to take the Mickey out of you yeah. a little bit. And and he was, you know, he
3: was very good. He, he was happy to talk to us.
5: And for these reason, for being such a good sport, mm. surprise, surprise. This is not the only visual parody Excellent. this week. There is another one, and it's also for James Well for something that we love on this show. It's the animal interruption of
1: the week. I haven't got because quite as uh, as good a shirt, though, as uh, James has tonight.
3: Do you like my shirt? It's almost worth tuning yeah, in to see my shirt, isn't it, really? <laughs> oh, Daisy,
4: shush. Set the dogs <laughs> Sorry, it's Daisy. <laughs> set um, the dogs
3: what's wrong with my shirt?
4: What's right Oof, with it? Dear, oh, dear.
3: <laughs> that um, sounds like a vicious dog.
5: Yes, the growling. I, I just think the dog doesn't like the shirt.
3: Maybe. That's, well, nobody does. That's what it is. I mean, nobody likes that shirt.
5: It's a Ben Fletcher shirt, isn't it? It
3: is, kind of. For so yeah. people
5: not familiar with Ben Fletcher, yes, he's the um, he's news news sports reader. Yes, formerly of Talk Radio and Now yes. Talk Sport. Yes, and he's the voice on the Peril Awards jingle.
3: Oh, is he? Yes, oh, he's I didn't the know voice. That.
5: Yeah, I yeah, didn't that's know Ben that. Fletcher. Well, anyway, he does he, wear
3: a loud shirt. He likes a loud shirt.
5: I think Loud is very generous. Mm. He, he likes a shirt. Yes. Uh, and, that's, and that's how I'm going to leave it. Okay. Because I don't want conflicts with and anyone. And James
3: likes a Loud shirt and tie, funnily enough. Does he? He has all his ties behind him.
5: Oh, yeah, but he doesn't wear them.
3: Well, occasionally he does, I think. Does he? Yeah. Oh, well. Mm.
5: I'll, keep, I'll keep looking. Keep I'll looking. Close closer look. Yes. It's now time to check with uh, Travel Guru Simon Calder. You both were going to yes. join Perry for the missing question of the week
4: will do what you can to um to get out of it mm. crikey and we're on to question three which i can't even remember what it is now no, neither can i so let's move on to question four <laughs> <laughs> that's
5: what happens when you ask too many questions exactly
3: right yeah well there is an art to asking questions isn't there yeah well, never they say never ask a question that you don't know the answer to which is not entirely true in my case because no. i do sometimes ask questions that i don't know the answer to
5: well but that's good because yeah. then that's how you learn that's why you ask asking i it. think the key is not to ask questions that are so long that they don't Seem questions anymore, That's they turn true. into monologues and yes. people don't know what to say to That's them. That's a
3: very good point.
5: But you don't do that.
3: No, I so we fine. No.
5: And finally, mm. our friend in the afternoons, Ian Collins, yes. who I think is waiting to come in. He will be here And shortly. this is going to resonate uh, with you because something similar happened as an incident earlier on this show. Yes. He wins a perio for the sound effect of the week.
0: I was watching your programme earlier. Um, that would never have been for... A, did it sound like somebody honked a horn behind me then? For a, that was my squeaky chair. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
3: The chair does squeak. It does squeak. But it didn't today, did it? It did, really?
5: yeah. Yeah. Didn't you see us laughing at one no. point?
3: Well, I see you laughing all the time. I just assume <laughs> you're laughing at me saying something ridiculous.
5: No, something happened. You asked the question and then ah. the chair squeaked. Oh, I didn't hear and it. Then, and then, and oh, I thought you'd I, noticed. No, I
3: didn't hear it. Sorry. Well, there you go. But, I mean, it's not too much to ask, is it? I mean, we've got the most beautiful studio here. You know, high above the Thames, mm. views of Tower of London, you know, high tech everywhere. Mm. Video, audio. You know, everything
5: we've got but everything but we can't
3: find a chair that doesn't squeak
5: I'll tell you what so that squeaky chair used to be in the control room
3: oh somebody's shifted it
5: somebody yes
3: well And I'm
5: suspicious of, of someone I'm
3: going to have to have words I think with the management
5: I think we should and get
3: them to replace the chair the silent chair should be in here
5: yes you can yes. have a
3: squeaky chair and nobody cares
5: well I don't want a squeaky chair yeah though. but
3: it doesn't matter though if you have matters to me Well, it doesn't (laughs) to me. I'm going to have to have 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 words.
5: All right, then. Thank you. Thank you. and, And thank you, because that's all for the Perrier Awards. There'll be more next week.
4: The Perrier Awards on Talk Radio.